You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. Amen. Thank you, Josh. Well, good morning, King's Cross. If you, um, if you don't know me, my name's Chip. One of the pastors here, we're glad um, that you are with us, especially if you are brand new. We meet new people uh, every Sunday, and so if somebody invited you, and um, maybe you're looking for a church home, or you're new to the area, or uh, maybe you're just trying to get reconnected to church after being out for a while, we're glad you're here. I hope maybe you'll fill out a connection card uh, in the seat back in front of you. You could drop it in the box there between the doors on your way out, or if you Stop by the welcome desk. Uh, we have a gift for you there. Even though we don't know each other yet, um, and if you're brand new, we'd love to get to know you more, but um, there is something uh, that I do know about you if it's your first week, which is that statistically speaking, um, within the first 10 minutes of when you drove onto our campus here, when you made the turn in off of Clemens Ferry, you decided whether or not you were going to come back. Research just tells us that. Let's us know that broadly speaking, well before I just got up uh, to begin the sermon, um, in a lot of cases before the second song, and depending on how early you got here, for some of you, before the first song started, you had already made up your mind whether or not you were willing to come back a second time. And of course, we hope um, that you will, but you're not unique in that. You're just human. Humans, as it turns out, are incredibly quick to make judgments. At a lecture on preaching that I attended uh, years ago, the great Haddon Robinson, who is wherever Josh went to, one of my favorite preachers, he's also with the Lord now, but he's given a lecture on preaching, and he said that preachers have 15 seconds to grab people's attention, 15 seconds for them to determine whether or not they're going to stick with you for the rest of the sermon. There was a Forbes article I saw a few years back that said entrepreneurs who are pitching an idea for a business um, to potential investors have seven seconds. In seven seconds, there is already a decision being made on the part of the potential investor on whether or not they're going to invest in the company. And there's a peer-reviewed research um, project that was done by some people up at um, Princeton, some psychologists up at Princeton, who said that strangers who meet you for the first time make a decision about your trustworthiness in one-tenth of one second. As soon as they meet you, just by looking at you, they determine whether or not they think you're trustworthy. There is this reflexive, universal, human bent towards judgmentalism. And it has some very real consequences to it in not just things like, well, do I or do I not think you're trustworthy, but real consequences in real life that really impact people. So we do this kind of um, instinctive, reflective, judgmental, judgment-making based on all kinds of factors. So we do it, for example, on how people look. There has been research done in a variety of, of settings that determine that people who are considered good-looking, 
and however it is that the researchers figured that out. But for people who are deemed to be attractive, are 50% more likely to get a call back for an interview, are offered starting salaries 10.5% higher than less attractive peers. They will, on average, earn about 12% more annually after they're hired. They will sell more real estate if they're a realtor than their less attractive peers, and they're more likely to be elected to public office. We also do it on the way that people sound. There was a Pew Research study that showed that listeners to audio tapes that were being played could correctly identify whether or not someone had attended college after hearing them say just seven words. And that listening to audio only, they did Pew Research again, did a study on hiring managers and determined that managers, just by listening to audio, could determine fairly accurately someone's social class. And that if they judge someone to be a part of the upper class, the, the higher end of socioeconomic spectrums, they judged them as more likely to be competent in their job, extended them higher initial sign-on bonuses and higher starting salaries. So we do it based on how people look, we do it based on how they sound, and we even make judgments based on what people do. So there was a Gallup survey that showed that 84% of people rated the honesty and ethical standards of nurses to be very high. So if you're a nurse, you should feel pretty good about that. Doctors came in at 67%. So I don't know what that says about who you'd rather listen to, <laughs> a doctor or nurse, right? Pastors, much to our shame, came in at 37%, which is embarrassingly low. We came in just below funeral directors and just above journalists. And the bottom rung on the ladder at 8% was members of Congress which may or may not say something about us rending ourselves apart over politics, but that's a separate issue. I share all of that because I know that when I read James 2.1, and it says, my brothers, show no partiality, I know that almost everybody in the room is going to go, ha-ha, I got this one. Woo, I can relax because I don't do that. I don't show partiality between people. That's not who I am. Yes, it is. And it's who I am too. So let's just get that out of the way. Because there's research that backs up that we all do this. And there may be some of you who will say, okay, fine. I do. I make judgments about people all the time. But most of the time, I'm right. Because I'm a very good judge of character. And I trust my gut. I have the gift of discernment. I can just tell by looking. Or you might say, you know what? If all of those statistics are true and the world all around me never stops judging me, why should I stop judging other people? It's just the way that things are. I mean, if the world never stops judging, why, why should I? And that is what James is after in the opening part of James 2. His goal is to help judgmental Christians like you and me, to think and to act and to become more like Christ and less like the world. 
He wants us to recognize this sin of partiality, of judgmentalism in our hearts and in our minds, and to fight it so that by the power of the Spirit of Christ we might put it to death. And he has this plan of attack in verses 1 through 13 of James chapter 2. It's this four-pronged plan of attack. Let's look at it together. James 2.1. My brothers, brothers and sisters, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So that's the command. Show no partiality. Now, if you're not a Christian yet, you might roll your eyes a little bit and think, man, Christians are the most judgmental people I know. Well, you're right. That's why James is writing a letter to us to correct us so that we might be less and less and less so. So James, who's the half-brother of the Lord Jesus, one of the apostles, and an author of one of the books of the Bible, agrees with you. And so you should lean in and listen to how it is that he's correcting people here. He is unpacking how is it that we can not commit this sin of partiality as we hold the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first prong of his attack is to think theologically. To think theologically. He's going to go after how we think first. Listen for it. We'll pick up at verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or, or you sit down at my feet, which is where servants would have, would have sat, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Has not. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. So James is after how you think. He wants you to think theologically, not like the world. So he says in verse 1, Remember, he's writing to the church. Do you not claim to have faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory? Isn't this how you self-identify as those who believe in the Lord of glory? And so, on the one hand, don't you believe that all people are made in God's image and worthy of dignity and respect? Do you not believe that Christ died for the sins of all of those who would ever turn from their sin and turn towards him in faith, do you not believe that one day people from every tribe and tongue and nation on all of the earth will be gathered around the throne singing praises to the Lamb, to the Lord of glory? Don't you believe these things? And on the other hand, like if in fact the risen Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, why are you pinning your hopes for a better future on your ability to network with people. Like, why are you trying to exalt yourself in the eyes of your peers? Why would you oppress the poor for your own gain? It, like, if that's who he is, and, and if you believe these things about his image bearers, why are you judging this dude's clothing? 
Like, why are you worried about her hairstyle or the way that she dresses and you're making these judgments? Doesn't this contradict what you claim to believe about Jesus? If he's the one who's the Lord of glory, why are you concerned about getting glory for you or giving glory to other people on earth? What he's saying is this reality is that the way that you think about people reflects the way you think about Jesus and vice versa. The way you think about people is a reflection of the way that you think about Jesus and who he is. The way that you think about God and the reality of how it is that he has created the world and created people to live in it. And so in verse 4, James puts it bluntly. He says, when you make distinctions among yourselves, you become judges with evil thoughts. I mean, you can't be much more pointed than that. So he's saying, you know, when you hire someone who's attractive because you think they'll be a better leader, you're just making a judgment based on evil thoughts. When you assume that someone with a country accent isn't very intelligent, You're just drawing distinctions based on your own evil thoughts. When you make these immediate judgments about that woman in the grocery store with the hijab on, just evil thoughts manifesting itself. When you're making these distinctions based on the way that people look or the way that they sound or what it is that they do, these surface-level distinctions, James says, that you're making between people more than anything, they just reveal your own broken, sinful patterns of thinking about people and the world around you. Now, we just said that we all do that. And so we already established that. So our challenge is not to argue that we don't make those type of surface-level distinctions that are based on our own evil thoughts. Our challenge is to start training ourselves to think theologically so that we can go to war with that broken instinct that we have in our hearts. You with me? So, like, you're aware, just to be, like, as blunt as James is being, you're aware, right, that, like, not all black people think alike. You're aware that not all rich people are greedy, right? You know that not all white men or Jewish women or people from New Jersey or from California, like they don't all act and think the same, right? Like not all immigrants came to the U.S. under the same circumstances. You can't paint that broad of a brush. Like not everybody who's tall played basketball in high school. You understand? Rick, not everyone who is unemployed or who is retired or who is a stay-at-home mom is in that season of life for the same reasons. These are judgments that we make very quickly. And James is saying that's sin. And it's because you have evil thoughts. And they're manifesting themselves. And so this is the great sin of partiality. It strips the person being judged of their humanity and of their God-given individuality and just blends them in with everybody else who has that same surface-level characteristic. And not only that, but it also puts the person who's doing the judging in the position of being God-like. 
Because what the person doing the judging says is, see, I can just look at you and I know, but you don't know. You're just making a distinction, James says, because you have these evil thoughts that are coming out. And in verse 5, James says, don't you understand that some of those that you look at and deem to be unworthy, God has chosen to be worthy in Christ. Don't you see that many of those that you look down on, God has chosen to elevate in the kingdom. And so it's this stinging indictment at the beginning of verse 6 when he says God has chosen them but you. And he's just cutting right to the quick. Friends, if we're going to go to war with this sin of partiality in our lives, we have to start by thinking theologically, by seeing and loving and interacting with those around us, not as the world does, but as God does. And lest you think that James is like packed full of these good Sunday school answers, because everybody knows in church the right answer to give to most questions, right? Well, you can kind of figure it out if you hang around for very long. But lest you think that's the case with James, and he's just somehow like detached from reality, this second prong of his attack on this sin of partiality is to think practically. So first he says, you got to start thinking about people theologically the way God does, because the way that you think about and treat and interact with people is a reflection of the way that you're thinking about God and who he is. And then he says, secondly, but you also might want to just think about things practically. Look back at the second half of verse 6. He says, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you're called? Now, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago when we started the series, one of the things that we talked about was these issues that are happening in the churches that are, have now uh, dispersed away from Jerusalem that James is writing about. And one of them was this growing gap between rich and poor. It was causing problems and dividing the church. And the problem was not that being wealthy was wrong. That's not the issue. Don't hear James saying that. The issue is not that being poor was somehow righteous. That's not the issue. The issue is that this gap between the haves and the haves not, have-nots was causing them to treat each other differently. So it's neither poverty nor riches that James is after. He's after what those things do to the way that people interact with each other. You with me? So evidently, and I would suggest ironically, the oppression of the poor by those who were in wealthy, influential, powerful positions, it was not leading to a gospel-centered correction of those people, and it was not leading to a gospel-driven reminder to them of God's heart for the marginalized. Rather, it was leading to even more deference being given to them. And James is going, why? Like, why would you do that? And I would suggest that this happens all the time. This isn't just a first century problem. 
People try to align themselves with people with resources and power and influence, even if the people with resources, power, and influence aren't exactly benefiting them. And so you just think about things kind of practically. What happens, for example, is the middle class in most cultures tends to feel hopeful. The middle class are jealous of the rich and the powerful, but they want to be them, and they believe that they can be them, and they're convinced that if they work hard enough, they will be them. And so a lot of times what happens is that the middle class aligns itself with wealth and power in the hopes that the system can just be maintained until it begins to benefit them because they're now at the top. And so they're willing to put up with a few things while they bide their time to make it to a place of wealth and power and influence. And the lower classes, again, in most cultures, this isn't true with every person individually, but broadly speaking, the lower classes in most cultures tend to feel hopeless. And so they resent the rich and the powerful and the influential, but they need them. They just need a little bit of help to get out of this place that they're in. And so they try to align themselves with the right group of wealthy, influential, powerful people who keep making promises that they'll help them. And so we see this kind of deference all the time. And what happens, and there are exceptions to the rule here and there, but what happens is that the status quo keeps on status quoing. And today, just like in the first century when James is writing, Christians in the church begin to argue with each other and tear each other apart because they're trying to figure out which group of wealthy, influential, powerful people the church ought to be aligned with. And James is going, what are you doing? Like, aren't you looking around and kind of seeing practically what it is that's happening? And so James is making an appeal to their experience. He's trying to get them to think practically. He says, like, don't you see that they're the ones dragging you into court? Why are you giving them the best seats in the assembly? Like, they're the ones who are abusing the system to take away your property. So one of the things we know historically was happening in the context that James was writing into. And so when they show up at a banquet, you kowtow to them? That doesn't make any sense. Like, this is just a practical appeal. Like, James is not, like, way up in the heavenly places somewhere making, like, he, he's down on the ground. So wh why... Why would you do this? Why would you continue to favor and look to and follow and align yourself with those who oppress the poor and the marginalized? Why would you do that for those who abuse their authority or, or malign and mock the weak and the helpless? Why would you continue to favor those who manipulate the court system because they have endless resources and expensive attorneys and they can find loopholes and use their privilege and like, why do you favor those who maintain the status quo, not because it benefits everybody, but because it benefits them? Why, James says, are you showing partiality to those who call themselves Christian, but live in a way that brings shame and dishonor on that name? He's saying, just think practically about what it is that you're doing because practically it's not helping you and theologically it's not reflecting the heart of God it's not reflecting a change that the gospel has wrought in your own life it is not honoring Jesus the Lord of glory it's only honoring them 
You see what he's after there? Like, James is not playing around. Right? Like, he's completely willing to call out the disconnect between what people say they believe and what they actually do. Right? James is not some ivory tower religious scholar. James is a pastor. James is on the ground with people. And he sees these blind spots that they have. And he sees that it's beginning to cause division in the church. And he sees that it's beginning to cause problems with people and their hearts. And he's concerned for their soul. And he says, like, I'm just willing to call this out. What are you doing when you act this way towards other people? And his goal, and I would say one of our goals at King's Cross, is to try to link Christians' heads with their hearts and with their hands. He's trying to get them to say, I want you to think about this right. I want you to love the Lord. I want you to act in a way that's consistent with that. And so he moves from how it is that people think about faith and life to how it is that they actually live out faith in life. And so the third prong in this attack on partiality is to act consistently. To act consistently. So it makes a theological appeal to them. You're not looking at these people the way God does. He makes this practical appeal. Will you just think about the reality of your situation and how it contradicts with your behavior? And now he's going to appeal to them to act in a way that's consistent with those truths. Look at verses uh, 8 down through 12. He says, If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. We don't have time to read this, but this whole passage, he's referencing directly Leviticus 19, 15 to 18. You might write that down and go back and read it this afternoon and just see the parallel. Leviticus 19, 15 to 18. Every single issue that he's after in the first 13 verses of James 2 is in 19, uh, Leviticus 19, 15 to 18. And so he is... He's referencing that, but he's also referencing, if you were here last week, what Pastor Josh talked about last week, which is this appeal to people not just to be hearers of the word, but to be doers of the word. And so he's summing up what he calls the royal law. It is the very heart of King Jesus' teaching about the greatest commandments. So they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? He says, it's to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And so James is saying, look, if you're doing that, if you're loving your neighbor as yourself, good for you. But again, James is a pastor. James is with people. And so he knows that many of the people he's writing to aren't living out that royal command to love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 9. So he says, if you're doing that, good for you. But, verse 9, if you show partiality, 
You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. So James knows what we do. And human beings haven't changed all that much in the 2,000 years since James wrote this, just like they hadn't changed all that much in the 1,400 years since Moses and his scribes were writing Leviticus. Because as it turns out, we're all kind of broken and fallen in the same basic ways. And so James knows what we do. What we do is that we convince ourselves we're good people because we don't commit really big sins. And so our sins... Our struggles. You know, this is just, this is a heart. I make some mistakes. Um, but it's not that big a deal. God knows my heart. Bless my heart. I just trust the Lord. He, kn- he knows. He knows I try. Other people's sins are really big and egregious. Right? Ours are just kind of slip-ups. You know, well, I backslid a little bit this week. And so we tolerate in our own lives a little bit of envy, a little bit of greed, a little closet racism, a little sprinkle of gossip here and now over coffee, the occasional late-night lust. I mean, nobody's getting hurt, right? It's just between, like, me and nobody's really... I mean, I'm not a serial killer. Right? I'm not out murdering anybody. I'm not doing a Walter White renovation on my RV, making a mobile meth lab. What's the big deal? James says, no. No, you have to act consistently with what you believe in all aspects of your life, including how you think about and interact with other people. And so he says this judgmental heart, this bent towards partiality so that you prefer certain kinds of people over others and you kind of mistreat or you just kind of apathetically overlook other kind of people because they're not really that important to you, that counts, he says. It's inconsistent with your faith. And so act consistently, he says, as those who've been transformed by the gospel. He drives it home in verses 11 and 12. He jumps to these extreme big sins that people like to pat themselves on the back because they haven't committed. He says, for he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. So he's just giving them a little illustration there. He's saying, no, this partiality is a sin, and that makes you guilty of the law, kind of like if you were a murderer. You're just a transgressor. I told you at the beginning of the series, like, James is in your face, right? Remember that? So you're like, man, I thought you were kind of kidding about that a little bit. I just, you know... James is real. There's this tension in the Christian life because the ideas of law and liberty seem like a paradox, don't they? It seems like they're at odds with one another. So what does it mean to act and to speak as those who are subject to the law of liberty? seems like James should pick a side. Are we supposed to obey God's law or are we free in Christ? James says, yes. Yes. Because this is what the gospel does. 
The gospel exposes our sinful hearts, our evil thoughts, our hypocritical and duplicitous actions. It, it holds the law up to us like a mirror, and it brings us to our knees because if we're honest, we understand that our sin has separated us from God and we can't reconcile ourselves to him. If we're just honest about the law, this is what it does. Because doesn't it seem so simple? Just act consistently with what you believe. But it's so hard. And none of us do it perfectly. As much as we want to, we don't. Remember Paul writing in Romans? And he said, what I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, I, I find myself doing. Who's going to save me from this body of death? The Apostle Paul. <laughs> How much hope do we have? This is just, this is what the law does. This is what the gospel does. It just holds a mirror up and says, here's who you are. If only there were someone who could step into our place and act consistently with what they believe. If only there were someone who perfectly obeyed God's law and who perfectly submitted to God's will. If only God were willing to look at somebody else and what they had done and say, you know what? They were so good, I'll count it as yours. If only there were someone who could stand in our place. And the good news of Jesus Christ is that our perfect substitute has come. That by God's grace through faith, his perfection is attributed to us. It's a great exchange. He takes our sin on the cross, all of our imperfection, all of our hypocritical actions, all of our evil thoughts, all of our sins of partiality and every other kind of sin you can think of. He takes those into himself bodily on the cross. He walks out of the tomb and says, if you believe in me, you can have my perfection. That brings freedom. So Galatians 5.1 says it's for freedom that Christ set us free. It's for freedom that we might walk in liberty, that we might walk in freedom that we might walk not held down and oppressed by the weight of our sin but in the freedom of knowing that it's been paid for and so it's as if in galatians paul says christians christ has set you free from the law fulfilling it for you he saved you from the consequences of your sin why would you go back to being a slave to it and James hits on the exact same idea in chapter 2 of his letter. He says, Christians, Christ has fulfilled the law. So walk in the freedom that comes from the gospel. But there's a tension that holds that rope tight. Because he says to do that, to walk in that type of freedom, to, to live in that type of liberty, you have to live and act in a way that's consistent with the gospel. So live and act in a way as someone who has been redeemed, as someone whose heart has been made new, as someone who's been set free in Christ, that you might live for God and for his kingdom. But James isn't going to leave it up in this kind of ethereal cloud somewhere that we can all convince ourselves doesn't really apply to us. He's in our kitchen. 
right? And so he says, you got to ask yourself, is the way that I'm thinking about this person consistent with the gospel? This is the same thing Jesus did. Do you remember when, when they come to Jesus and you know, they're asking him and he says, well, no, you may not have committed adultery, but you lusted in your heart. Same thing, you're guilty. He says, well, I know you may not have murdered, but you hated. Same thing, you're guilty. This is the exact same thing. Like, Where do you think James got this from? He's just listening to the teaching of Jesus. So you get, you got to ask yourself, are the thoughts in my mind about this person consistent with the gospel? Or is the way that I'm treating this person consistent with the gospel? Is the way that I'm acting in this situation consistent with the gospel? I am free in Christ, yes and amen, but I have to ask myself, is that reflected in the way that I use my money or treat my neighbors or post on my social media accounts or serve at my church or conduct myself at work? Do I act consistently with what I claim is true about Jesus and the impact that he's had on my life? That's what James is after. Because it matters to God. And one day when you stand before him to give an account for your life, it's going to matter to you too. Look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the fourth way James calls us to attack this sin of partiality in our lives is to act mercifully. To act mercifully. So here's what James says, basically, in verse 13. One day, you're going to stand before God and be judged. Do you want him to judge you the way you judge other people? Do you want God to judge you based on how you look physically or the car you drive or the neighborhood you live in? Is that the standard of judgment that that you'd like to be applied? Do you want God to judge you based on your GPA or which degree you got from which school? Is is that what you're after? That's what you think is fair. Do you want God to judge you based on how Not you, but other people who have your same skin color or your same accent or your same nationality, how they live their life. Or do you want God to judge you based on whatever your view was on the hot-button political topic at the moment that you just so happened to die? Do you want him to judge you on the single worst moment of your life that you've carried around like a scarlet letter and that people whisper about behind your back. Is that what you're after? Well, of course not. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants to be judged like that. We all want mercy for us. And so James says, if mercy is what you want, act mercifully. If that's the way you want God to treat you, then treat other people mercifully. And if you don't want that, And what you want to do is you want to go through life judging everybody around you, then just understand that God's going to treat you the same way. Because what you are revealing is that you have not, in fact, submitted yourself to Christ as the Lord of glory, and you have not, in fact, been transformed by the gospel. So mercy will not come to those.
Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. That's heavy. And so you have to ask yourself, James is saying, just very real questions. Do I have little to no tolerance for people who aren't like me? Do I find myself constantly angry at people who disagree with me? Do I refuse to forgive people who've sinned against me because I would have never done that? So they don't deserve to be forgiven. Do I assume the worst in people because of their socioeconomic status in the world or because of their family or because of their political persuasion or whatever it might be? Okay. But just know that judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But friends, thanks be to God that that is not the last sentence in James's thought. Because he says, mercy triumphs over judgment. For those who are in Christ, for those who are at war with their sinful nature, to those who are willing to repent of their sin and trust not in their own perfection, but in Christ, mercy triumphs over judgment. For those who live lives that reflect a heart that's been changed, Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so King's Cross, as hard as these things are to wrestle with, and they are, we want to be a people and a church that works hard to combat the sin of partiality and to reflect the mercy and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has shown to us, that God has shown to us through him. And we want to sing praises that mercy triumphs over judgment. And we want to reach out to those who feel weighed down and heavy by sin and let them know that there is a place where mercy triumphs over judgment. And we want to be and to act as people who have both received that mercy and as Josh said during the offertory, that it hasn't just come to us, but it is going through us to the people around us. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.